Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, his entire career began because he was standing in a pool by himself in Livingston, New Jersey at 12 years old. Welcome Jason Alexander. A-okay. Hey everyone, my guest today is the Tony Award-winning actor Jason Alexander. His Broadway credits include Merrily We Roll Along, The Rink, Broadway Bound, Jerome Robbins' Broadway, Accomplice, Fish in the Dark, and together with Martin Short, he starred in the Los Angeles production of The Producers. He became an internationally recognized star playing George Costanza on NBC's Seinfeld, which garnered Jason six Emmy and four Golden Globe nominations an American Television Award, and two American Comedy Awards. In film, some of his credits include Pretty Women, Jacob's Ladder, Dunstan Checks In, Love, Valor, Compassion, Ira and Abby, and Shallow Hal. Notable TV projects include Bye Bye Birdie, A Christmas Carol, Bob Patterson, Listen Up, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and most recently, the hilarious Hit the Road. He can direct, he can do magic, he does stand-up comedy, and I'm so thrilled to welcome my friend Jason Alexander to the podcast. Hi, darling. It is so remarkable to have you here, and it's so fantastic that you're back on the New York stage where it all started, correct? Yes, it I actually it, started in commercials, but it's okay. It did? Yeah. My fir- actually, no, my first professional gig was, um, was thanks to Ken Jennings, the original Tobias and Sweeney Todd. He did two things for me. He was a judge in a high school theater contest who really was very complimentary to me, and I guess I I had made an impression on him. And he was part of a children's theater company that still exists in New Jersey called the Pushcart Players. And 
somehow they had gotten somebody to produce a TV pilot. They do little original musicals for children. And someone said, oh, this could be a good TV series for kids. And that whole company was set to do it. And Ken got Sweeney Todd. And it made him unavailable for that pilot. And he said, you know, I just saw a kid in this high school competition. You should, you should look at him. And I went in and did that pilot in his role. That got me into AFTRA and Equity and SAG and then started. And it also got me my managers. They never sold it as a, as a series. But what we shot aired as like a little 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning local CBS. And it aired in New York. And this management company that was dealing with younger people hunted me down and said, we'd like to handle you. And I went, okay. While you're in high school. While I was in high school. Well, let's go back before high school because obviously, let's go back your, when you were in your mother's stomach. <laughs> yes. Do you, do I remember, remember it well. Yes. You, you know, there's some guys who do theater when they're young and some mm -hmm. who don't. And everyone has different reasons for kind of finding their way into that magical space. Yeah. What was yours? How did uh, you end up there? It was, it was, nobody would have expected it, least of all me. Though I have uh, a half-brother and a half-sister, they're much older than me. I wasn't raised with them. So I was growing up as mostly an older kid, uh, an only kind, an, an older only child. Only, you started older. I, was, I started older. Benjamin uh, Button. I'm like, beat me to it. <laughs> so I was an only kid. I was a very shy kid. I was a bit of a latchkey kid because my parents both worked. And uh, I didn't have a lot of friends, and I wasn't really part of a group. Why and did you not have a lot of friends? Because I was uh, the shy thing. And I was also, I started getting heavy when I was six, so I was the easy kid to to be bullied. So I wanted to be a magician. I got into magic when I was young. A lot I would of shy do that in my room. do. Yeah, because it makes you feel powerful. Right. <laughs> um, and you can kill in your mind all can. the people That's who are right. mean to you. And impress all the girls. Exactly. Um, and I went to, when I was 12 years old, I went to magic camp. <laughs> okay, we're done, Jason. learned. Yeah, I know. I have a kick, me son. <laughs> um, and, I, and I realized, I actually made the realization myself, I was never going to be the magician that I wanted to be because I wanted to do cards and coins and that thing. So my hands are small and my fingers are so you could not properly disguise what you were doing. It was doing. not going to be, uh, I was not going to be the next great. Was that, I mean, this is a long time ago, so yeah. we can reflect on it yeah. without feeling the pain. But if not that really, was what you loved, yeah. and then you realized you could not, yeah. was that, oh, that a was hard big, moment? Hard moment. And it followed upon that I moved from Maplewood, New Jersey that I summer. I looked at a house in Maplewood. Everybody is. Maplewood is now Broadway West. <laughs> um uh, over to Livingston. And Livingston had a very active teen theater. The, all the schools did shows, and they had a, a thing called teen theater, Livingston Teen Theater. They did four productions a year. And it was summertime, and I was... My mother, the genius, went, I got you a membership in the community pool, so you'll meet the kids. Like, I'm going to meet the kids Just what an pool. insecure, right. slightly fat chubby... kid with suntan <laughs> with lotion no and no friends at a pool... And I, thought, I dedicate this God. award to my mother. Yeah. And I'm in the pool, and this a very cute girl comes over and goes, Hi, do you sing? And I, you know, and I always, uh, we can get into why I love show albums, but I, I loved show albums. And I went, Yeah, yeah, you know. And they were doing a production of Sound of Music, and they had lost Friedrich, the oldest Von Trapp boy. We needed a, a Jewish <laughs> and man. A need, and a, yeah, we need uh, an emergency <laughs> Friedrich. And I went in, and I had never been on stage before. How old are you? Twelve. And uh, it is what you and I both know. It is instant acceptance and community. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you can say the line and sing the song and you're not a jerk, you're in a group. You're home. And that's what got me, that I was suddenly, I had people. I had a whole community in a day. 
And by the end of that day, the minute I went, oh, dear, they were like, you're in. You're one of us. You're a lifer, actually. And, and that was what got me you know, doing theater. And then all those kids, because we grew up in New Jersey, it was so easy to get into New York. We came every weekend and we saw one or two shows per weekend. And very, within six months of me being with that group, Pippin was previewing on Broadway and it was Ben Ben Vereen's Pippin. And I went in and it had literal magic, which was, wow, magic. And Ben Vereen, who was magic, <laughs> unbelievable, right? And I came out of there going, oh, "It's all an illusion. It's all it's a magic trick." I'm like, "I could do this magic trick for real." I can real. be the magic trick. And that's when I went, "Oh, this, this is it. This is the thing." And that was it. And obviously, I mean, you have an incredible singing voice, and oh, you just mentioned that you listen to cast albums, mm-hmm. like all of us lying on our bed when you could still read. Sure. The liner notes. And yeah. so were your parents musical people? No. Like, why were those albums in your home? My sister. My parents loved theater, and they started taking me to the theater when I was very young. But my sister was the show album uh, girl. Queen. And she she had all, I mean, she had, you know, easily 40 albums. Um, my mother always tells a story about, you know, we would drive from New Jersey to Florida for the vacation every year. And I would sing Man of La Mancha on the way down and Sound of Music on the way back. And you know, it was just that. And I loved those. I think the reason I love those songs is I loved, because I was a, a fairly lonely kid, they were telling me stories. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a song. I was getting a whole show. I was get, I didn't realize that, but I was getting, just by listening to the album, I was getting the show. And that was my babysitter, was th- this wonderful storytelling machine. And getting lost in those worlds. Yeah. So after Sound of Music, you start doing plays in high school? Or yeah, you're in middle school everything. still? I was I guess, in, yeah, I was yeah, in uh, seventh school. grade. Uh, I was doing the school plays. I was doing uh, teen theater. And uh, I got very ser- After I saw Pippin, I got very serious. I started taking <laughs> singing lessons and tap lessons. It was not pretty. And within two years, uh, when I was 14 or 15, is when I did that pushcart player thing. That's incredible. And then Ken gets the other job, and you get that one, and and now you have a manager. You went to college? I did. I did uh, three years. Yep, three years at Boston U. Was it a three-year program? No, it was not. I got cast in a highly forgettable little horror film uh, called The Burning, notable only in that it was my first film, Holly Hunter's first film, Fisher Stevens' first film. And it ran late. Uh, it was being shot over the summer after my junior year. So it did you get late. backstage and, like, audition for it? Do you even remember how you even got in that film? M- my managers. Oh, right. Of course. Cool. So you would be on backstage. It was very, Joy very Todd great. casting. Sure. And uh, I went in and auditioned for Joy and eventually the director, and they hired me. And uh, it was two weeks late, which made me two weeks late for my senior semester. And I said, well, should I just come back? And they went, no, you've missed you've missed two weeks. Why don't you take this semester off and then you'll come back and you'll graduate a semester later. They're like, also, we've already spent your money, sir. Um, <laughs> but come back because we can totally get Well, I also wanted to make the argument, you know, we're studying walking and talking. Right. I've been walking and talking for okay, 18, but those 18 two 19 weeks, years now. You really know it's how to give each yeah, other back massages. Exactly. And that was valuable, actually. Um, but it, it was the best thing that could happen because in that semester, I went to work as an office flunky for Joy Todd, who took pity on me, met my wife. Dana. Dana. And got Merrily We Roll Alone all in that semester. So that the infamous is what production kept me from going back. Now documented by Lonnie by Price. By Lonnie Price. In kind of a wonderful, unbelievable documentary. 
for seven years he worked on that thing. We all went, what are you doing? This is a, a, a failed show with a largely unknown cast. You're making a documentary about them? What well, is this going to be? something about that experience, right? Having all of those players around a Sondheim musical. Yeah. Casting all these young people. Do you remember auditioning for, for Merrily We Roll yeah. Along? I, I, only because there was a, you know, when I first went in, it was Murderer's Row. It's Hal Prince, Steve Sondheim, George, uh, George Firth, Paul Gemignani, Ron Field, uh, Joanna Merlin was the casting. I mean, you know, and Joanna How do I not was throw so, up on everybody? Well, absolutely. <laughs> and Joanna takes the time to introduce everybody to the entire table. How do you do? I'm shaking hands, blah, blah, blah. I do my audition. I come out, and I'm getting a sip of water at the water fountain, and this man goes, nice, nice, nice. And I turn around and go, oh, hi, I'm Jason. We haven't met. And he goes, we just met. It was Paul Gemignani. I mean, I hadn't even looked. Of course not. I, I'm shaking hands with people. I don't know who the hell I'm talking to. So it was daunting. Are you auditioning with material from the show? No. Do you have your, your song that you, you do? You have your up and your ballad. So you did it. And you, uh, you read a scene. You read a scene from the show. I think we, I think we read on the first audition. And yeah. was that a grueling audition process? Nope. or Mm-mm. I did one audition, and then I was invited to do a reading of Merrily. And then I don't think I ever had, I think I came back for one more audition, but I don't, I think they were just kind of calling me in with people. And at the end of that day, it's that, it's in Lonnie's movie. They go, you're the cast. And we go, oh, well, you are. How old are you then? I, this is disputable. I, I was either 20 or 19. Let me ask IMDb. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember what year it was. So my, my birthday always coincides with the year. So in 1980, I was 20. That's good for and people And I, like I can't remember if Merrilee's casting was in 80 or 81, Okay, but it was right around. 20. I feel like we'll be able to figure that yeah. out. And then you're in a Sondheim musical. Yeah. What did that mean to you? Oh, it was insane. It's, you're working with Christ and Moses. And what was that like? Were they nice? Yes, they were lovely. Um, al- almost always. You know, as that show got more and more stressful because it wasn't working, you know, people would come unglued a little bit. I was never really in anybody's crosshairs because my role was pretty knowable and pretty sympathetic and almost always good comic relief when I was on. So I didn't really get thrown around the way the three stars of the show did. Um, And I kind of knew how to do that role on day one. So I wasn't anybody's problem. So I could kind of sit back and watch this thing. And I always wanted to direct, and I always had my eye on it. So I knew I wanted to watch Hal Prince and see what this was about and how does this thing get put together. Is it different from when we do a show at school? Or um, Is it? It's it not different? largely different other than there is no blueprint. You know, right. usually when you do a show that somebody's done, it says, they cross right. And that's because whoever was doing it the first time decided to cross right. Right. It was fascinating. Uh, you know, Steve... Um, Steve Sondheim, Sondheim did a, a yes, and I, and by the way, that was the hardest part of it because on day one he said everybody call me Steve, and I went, oh, that's really hard. No. To sir, not I can call you sir. Or God or Lord or whatever. <laughs> Steve came to me at one point. Uh, the the opening of Act Two did not exist. The song "It's a Hit" did not exist when we started, and he said to me about a week or two in rehearsal. Um, I'm writing a song uh, for the start of Act Two. You you're going to figure in it. Uh, is there anything I don't know about your instrument? I said, no, I, I think you know everything about my instrument. What you may not know is I, I don't hear chromatics very well. So sharps and flats are kind of hard for me. And he went, oh, good to know, good to know. And he comes back, I don't know, a couple days later. And he goes, all right, so here's your part. And it's nothing but chromatics. 
It, it was a, so it was he's a, a jokester, that Stephen. Well, it was a thing that went, hold it, folks, there's still the reviews left, both the trip and the news left early. It's just chromatics. And he plays it for me, and I went, I turned white. I went, oh, my God, oh, Steve, Steve, uh, uh, either I misspoke, I hadn't misspoke, or maybe, maybe you misheard me, but I don't hear chromatics very well. And he said, no, I, yeah, you have to learn. And so not only did he write a thing that was perfect, but it was also a challenge. And Do you read you know, music? I do. Ha- yeah. Did that happen when you sort of, after you I got out f- of the pool to, to be no, inside I, of in music? Third grade, you probably had this. In third grade, you had to take an instrument. Well, we started with a recorder. Well, nobody started with the recorder. When I'm older yeah. than you, nobody started with the recorder. <laughs> were recorders um, around when you had They yeah. were, uh, but, but you had to take that. a real instrument in my third grade, mm-hmm. and I had really heavy braces. So I I couldn't do. We need some visuals. I couldn't do we... piano because <laughs> we didn't have a piano. I Your wanted hands to do drums. Small, right? uh, my my parents said no, no drums. Uh, I knew any string instrument would get me beaten more than I already was. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do anything that went in the mouth like a reed instrument. No good. I couldn't do anything that had a a, a buzz like you know with a trumpet because that would hit the braces. So what's the one instrument I could play that would also guarantee? That I would be beaten on a daily basis. The flute. You were going to say the harp. <laughs> yes, great. So I learned to read music on a flute. Um, but you and, were able to translate that into reading, to sight reading. Well, I taught myself piano, sing. so I learned chord structure okay. and I learned all that stuff. So yeah, I can. I can. And had a great ear. I have. I have. I think what they call relative pitch. So you know, if you give me the first note and I'm just looking at the music, I can see what the intervals are and I can get. I'm going to get pretty close to the melody on the first read. Did you stay in touch with Sondheim? I've seen him many times over the years. We're not like pen pals. Um, um, I was. I, I'd be very honest. It's not his fault. It's. It's. You know. It's my issues. I, Do you I want never, to take this time to apologize? I never felt quite comfortable enough to think of him as a colleague or right. a friend or. A, you know, he was always. He had this kind of otherworldly status to me, and I was never quite breathing uh, normally around him. Um, but we, you know, we worked together on Jerome Robbins. Uh, I've done uh, his birthday tributes. Uh, I mean, we've we've been able to to um, work together a few times. And there was an article he that came out in the New York Times Magazine. I think he was maybe seventy or seventy five, and he wrote a piece where he said of himself, "I I am becoming irrelevant. I I you know, it's passing me." And I wrote him a letter. And I said, you know, something like, Dear Steve, I just want you to know I have a five-year-old boy who can sing most of Forum, most of Into the Woods, some of Sweeney Todd, and he knows songs from just about everything you've read. Right. We didn't force these down his throat. This was the music that he gravitated to. And he's five. And then I finished it by saying, in the words of a very clever lyricist, Move on. Anything you do, let it come from you. Then it will be new. Give us more to see. And he wrote back this gorgeous letter, and you know that I've I've always cherished. But wow. um, so you know we have a little bit of that. But well, <clears> there intimacy. were people in Merrily who were much much closer right. to Steve than I. Well, that began a pretty incredible ride on Broadway yeah. that perhaps. You know, had television not grabbed you, that would have continued. I only thought that was my my fantasy was a career in the New York theater. And probably you were pretty happy doing it. Very. Yeah. You won a Tony very young. I mean, now we have the Ben Platts and and other people of yeah. the world who are who are very very young winning Tonys. Yeah. Um, 
But you were still in your 20s? I was 29. You got to work with Manny Eisenberg, who may not be producing anymore, but but when you were coming up was one of the great, uh, the Ziegfelds of our time. And he loved you. Manny and I, uh, yeah, we're still very, very good friends. And you started in Broadway Bound with him? I did. And Neil Simon's around. Who else was in that cast? Jonathan Silverman, Linda Lavin, John Randolph, uh, Phyllis Newman. Um, uh, I'm, oh God, he's no longer with us. Uh, Phil, I can't remember Phil's last name, played our father. Um, I think that was everybody. It was a small cast, but glorious. That wasn't directly after Merrily, was it? No, the rink. Uh, right. Cheetah Rivera? I, I, did broad, I did Forbidden Broadway for almost a year after Merrily, and then I did the rink with Cheetah and Liza and the boys and... Candor and Ab and, uh, and Terrence McNally. And this. I mean, you know, every time I w- got a job, I was going, I'm working with who? <laughs> you know, well, it it's kind of remarkable. I mean, you really did. And, and you're married at the same time? Did you I marry got, young? Yeah, I got married at 22. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's young. Uh, I, I, it is. You were kids. Uh, uh, we were. You're still kids. Oh, in a way. In a way. <laughs> so you go from Broadway show to Broadway show. You win a Tony, which was remarkable. Were there any slow periods once you started working? Right after Merrily. There was a nine-month... I was always able to do commercials, so I never was hurting... You could pay your rent. ...for income. Um, But the theater had gone away, and I thought, "Uh, uh-uh, it was a fluke. And I actually thought about two things, one going back to school, and the other was, um, I said to my wife, uh, because she was trying to be an actress at the time, I said, uh, Dana, I'm going to go to uh, the American Bartending School because it's like a one-week course. But I don't drink. So for me, it would have been an eight-week course. Um, and she said, no, that's ridiculous. Um, and she, her father worked in the fashion world. And there was an opening uh, at Perry Ellis Menswear. So she said, I'll go to work. You stay available. And that's what we did. She did that for two years and kept us going until the theater kicked back in. Before we go forward, your birth name is not Jason Alexander. No, not even close. Jay well, Greenspan, it is close, right? Yeah. Jay Scott Greenspan. Jay Scott Greenspan. Yeah. How did you come up with Jason Alexander and when? <laughs> uh, so remember, I had to join after at 14 That's because right. of Pushcart Players. And I had always, for the two years that I thought, I'm going to be an actor, um, Jay always feel, felt small for me. I just didn't feel like a Jay. It may have been that I was a fat kid, and I went, no, my my girth is bigger than my name. So I always had Jason in my head, and I thought it was going to be Jason Scott. And the reason I thought Greenspan has to go is because it wasn't about Jewish. It was about, it was playground trauma. When I was being teased, it was green, fill in the blank, you know, whatever you want it to be. So I went, I got to get away from this thing somehow. And I thought Jason Scott, and I... That's all I thought about for two years. If I ever changed my name, Jason Scott. And I went down to AFTRA, and they said, would you like a stage name? And I said, yes, Jason Scott, please. And they went, we have 21 of them with every possible spelling. Let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> and I had never thought that I couldn't mm-hmm. be Jason Scott. And I was in a blind panic. And what came to me was uh, that my dad would probably feel terrible about me not using our family name. And his name was Alex. And I went, um, Jason Alexander? And they went, you can have that. Okay. And so it was a spur of the moment 
standing online, filling out a form and after. How long do you think it took for you to feel like Jason Alexander? I'll tell you when I get there. Okay. <laughs> we got, we got, I mean, there's no one in the booth after right. you. Yeah, no, it's, it is, it's very interesting, especially when my sons were born. Because my sons have very different personalities and get along brilliantly. And one of them is Jay Greenspan. And one of them is Jason Alexander. There was a persona that had to go with Jason Alexander because the the regular me would not... If I were doing brooding, dark roles, I might have been able to get away with it. But looking the way I look and being cast the way I was cast, there was a kind of easy and gregariousness that needed to go with that persona or I was not going to get these gigs. And I kind of had to figure out who that guy was right. going to be. And it wasn't fake. It was just calling upon parts of me that were not the most comfortable parts. And when my kids were born, I actually went, well, this is living therapy because that's really Jason and Jay. Are their and last names them. Greenspan yeah. or Alexander? Yeah. In fact, Gabe, who's a professional actor, went with Greenspan. You're like, Gabe... Don't do it. No, I, I said, you, it's your call, man, That's whatever amazing. you want to do. So Each tells legal, a story. So, so your driver's license says what? Greenspan. So I need to do this whole bio again. Yes, My guest today. Yeah, it's Jay Scott Greenspan. So there's times from where Whitney you... <laughs> and Nay Livingston. Interesting. So there's still two of you, in a way. Yeah, I mean... the. Uh, I, I mean, you and I What's spent time together. I don't know if you if you've ever spent much time with Jay. Jay is very quiet. Um, comedy. When I started acting, when I was twelve, I didn't think, "Oh, I'm going to be in comedies." I love to sing, so I thought musicals. But I was, you know, Sweeney Todd is my favorite musical of all time. Right. You were going to be killing and eating yeah, people. Yeah, I thought I'm going to play the classical roles and the and the dark roles and the mm. romantic roles, and it and I carried that all the way through into college. And I had a wonderful professor who's passed away named James Spruill um, at Boston University, and he pulled me into his office in my sophomore year and said, "I know your heart and soul is Hamlet, and you could be a profound Hamlet, but you're never going to play Hamlet." So if you want a career, a real career, you better look at the Falstaff. Hmm. And I went, That's comedy, painful. comedy. Yeah, wait, what do you but mean? But I took him very much to heart. And I and that's when I started looking at really wonderful comedic actors and comedians and going, how are they, how are they doing this? Um, and, and tried to put together a, a, a package of tricks that I could build on to try and do comedy. That's kind of amazing because... Obviously, it had to be intuitive. There's craft to everything and a skill set, but you also have to be able to intuit where, the, where the beats are. Yeah, there's something about comedic actors that do have an innate sense of if I push this or if I twist this, it can go funny. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was in there. Um, as well as. As well as, and, and we'll fast forward in a moment, it has to come from truth, right? I mean, the reason... That's where most of yeah. the comic characters that I play, more often than not, have dire circumstances. Yes, and, they're and just, a need, a great need. They're as big as the circumstances. So, so let's flash forward a little bit to a comedic role that really changed your life. Mm -hmm. Did you audition for Seinfeld? For the man or for the piece? For the show Seinfeld, did you have to audition? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so had you done any television before that? A little. Okay. Are you living in LA, or are no. you a New York actor New York. doing pilot season? And how old were you when you got Seinfeld? It was right after 23. the twenty-three, <laughs> eight, seven, sixteen. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. So you were around uh, 30. It, it, it kind of went Tony Award, Pretty Woman, Seinfeld mm-hmm. in very rapid succession. So the Tony Award opens up new casting directors or producers I meeting guess, you. Yes, yeah. So let's um, start with Pretty Woman, actually, mm-hmm. who, which turned out to be a huge film, and yeah. no one knows going in what is going to happen with something in which you play a villain. Yeah. Probably for the last time, nope. right? No. Nope. There are other villains? I have some villains. Okay. Yeah. So you were able to still kind of check into that part of you that well, doesn't have to be Gary, nice and funny. And you know, Gary Marshall. Who you meet the, during that process. Right. So I auditioned for, for Gary, uh, for Pretty Woman, uh, early on, and he went, it's good, you could do it, yeah, it could be you, you're good. And then he was not going to cast me. But, um, oh, who was that wonderful casting director who had my back on that? See, this is the senior moments coming in. But this wonderful woman, um, it'll come to me as we talk, really thought I'd be interesting casting for that role. Gary had somebody completely different in mind. And Pretty Woman was not the movie that everybody knows. It was a script called 3000, which is the amount of money Richard pays her for the week. And it was a darker script. They mm. don't wind up together at the end. She's a drug addict. The depiction of prostitution is a little more realistic. And my character is, there's nothing funny about him. And Gary had his mind on an actor, and they couldn't make a deal with that actor. Just, they couldn't make a deal. Do you know who that was? I do, but I don't want to say, because that's not swear. Um, but at the last minute, before they had to shoot, the casting director said, well, what about Jason? And Gary said, I don't want to hear his name. He's not, he's too young. He's too cute. It's not right. He's and, not a bad guy. No, exactly. This wonderful lady whose name is eluding me at the moment got me into a room with Richard Gere, who put me on phone books so I would be relatively as tall as him. And we did a scene, and then Richard took that tape and went to Gary and went, this is the guy. And I, that's how I got it. And I walked onto the set my first day knowing the director was not thrilled that it was me that was there. And then within the first day, Gary went, oh, this is going to be good. Because Gary had a different movie in his head. Uh And a lot of Pretty Woman is ad-libs, improvisational scenes, moments when people didn't know the camera was on, uh, tricks that he played on people. And the producers were pulling their hair out, going, this is not our movie. And only Gary knew what he was making. And then, boom, Pretty Woman. So it it was a crazy process. And Richard Gere, who didn't know you, was like, when you think back to that moment of an actor's generosity in that way, he just... I love Richard. Richard was so kind to me. Uh, And I've worked with him twice. Not Richard Kind. No. Richard Gere. No, not Richard Kind. Um, (laughs) Who's also very nice to me. (laughs) And you're lovely, Alana. I don't know that this is right for you, but you're lovely. I've seen um, everything. And he has. Yes. And he has. I know Craig Bierko was on the show, uh-huh. my show, and I feel like half of that is also Richard Kind. <laughs> and Richard's like, you've had many people doing me. Right. Might I come in? Right. I'm like, I don't really need you to. Yeah, really. Everyone We're better does you than better. you, I forgot to say. Everybody does you better. Wow. All right. Well, thank you, Richard Gere. Yeah. So you name. do that film. Obviously, it comes out and... Does Bafo at the box office. Yeah, big surprise. And yet, you are then cast in someone who's a very warm guy, neurotic. 
and so it wasn't yeah. a case of you being pigeonholed in a certain kind of no role. I don't know what it I don't know what the linchpin was I, you know when you ask Larry and Jerry now they say the minute they saw my tape they went that's the guy so you went on tape first I was I went on tape in New York with nobody connected to the project in the room they just hired a local casting right. director and said it was me put twenty guys Alana on camera. put Jason on yeah. tape and no script four pages of the pilot script. And I, I read it, I went, I don't know what this is, but it reads like a Woody Allen film. So that's where the glasses came from. And that's, Did you go into your audition with glasses? Oh, yeah. And, yeah, you had your and, costume. And I literally, I mean, George has a thick New York accent, but I did the first audition literally doing Woody Allen. It was, you know, it was blatant. And then I did that tape and I went, yeah. Bye. <laughs> Never see that again. A little over the top. And yeah. uh, got a call a week later. It was Larry David on the phone. He said, yeah, we want to fly you out and uh, you'll read with the network. And he said, we love what you're doing. You know, just don't be quite so woody. The, the accent's fine, just not Woody Allen. You're like, what do you mean? I, woody who? No, it was, it was very clear. Did you know who Larry was? No. Uh, no. I had seen Larry do stand-up once you years had. before. And it okay. was... Uh, it was uh, Terrible. It was a night I will never forget. He was supposed to do 15 minutes. He did two. And his exit line... Can we curse on your show? Yeah. He, he he exited the stage by calling the audience a bunch of ignorant cunts and then left the stage. And I thought, well, that was an interesting man who I guess I'll never see again. And then I spent nine years being him. So, um, And I, had, I, I didn't know Jerry. I'd seen Jerry work. Um, and Jerry and I had a, a lovely energy from the moment. So he we was met. in the room when you. Flew I out. read with Jerry for my network audition. Yeah. Um, but I think I read. I, I think. I mean, I know Larry Miller was up for the role, and I know Larry Miller and Jerry were very good friends. I did know that because I'd worked with Larry Miller on Pretty Woman, mm -hmm. and he had talked about his friend Jerry Seinfeld, his friend Jerry Seinfeld, and. Um, so I thought, well, this is stupid. Yeah, right. Larry Miller's going to get it. I think I tested on the same day as Larry Miller. So I had nothing on it. I did my audition, got back on a plane. By the time I landed back here, they said, yeah, you got it. And was that a straight-to-series order, or was it just a pilot? No, it was a pilot. And then it was it a pilot with up. the worst <laughs> the, <laughs> the worst test result. No, it didn't get picked up. It had the worst testing results in the history uh, of, of modern television. Good for, a pilot. for you. And it was not picked up. Uh, everybody was released, and they used to air the dead pilots back then in a, in some crazy time slot, you know, like 10.30 at night. And the critic at TV Guide wrote a love letter to it. And NBC loved Jerry and, you know, wanted to do something with him, and they thought, well, did we miss this somehow? Hmm. Because they got a, a, a decent reaction from the tiny little audience that saw it, and they went... Gee, we have no money. And this guy at the network, Rick Ludwin, who was really in charge of late night and specials, said, well, I have money for a summer series and we don't have anything. So you can do a couple episodes that way. And out of his budget, we did four more. And that was the first season, pilot and four. <laughs> and those four tested terribly, too. Um, Still terrible. And for some reason, I think because we appealed to the demographic that was hard to get, we appealed to men uh, I guess, 18 to 35. Who are not big half-hour watchers. Big, right. And they, so they kept, so we could always advertise it. People would buy the advertising time. And it was somewhere in the late second, beginning third season where they put us on after Cheers and we did, uh, I think it was the Masturbation Contest episode. And then we were fine. Which is but where I got to meet then, you. Yeah. Up and until then, we we were on the bubble every week. Right. You know, it's funny. I Because I was in the contest, I 
still, even though I don't have the hair, the body, or the face anymore <laughs> of Joyce, the aerobics sure, instructor, yeah. I get recognized all the time. Oh, right? And I think every time that happens, or I get um, a very small residual check, I picture the rest of you guys going through your life, the check you're getting. <laughs> It's no longer as impressive. Uh, (laughs) I might be down to what you're making at this point. (laughs) But just the power of... um of of something to grasp an entire culture psyche. There right. there was something about that episode and and the zeitgeist of the culture that it pushed the envelope but it wasn't rude. Right. Um and it was hilarious. Yeah, absolutely hilarious and kind of had never been done before. Exactly. And I know, you know, in talking to different people associated with the show, they felt like that episode, although there have been so many brilliant episodes, Gave all of you this sense, like, we can do anything. That changed our fortunes. That became, you know, they talk about the water cooler show. Yes. That was when we became a water cooler show. Everybody was talking about it the next day. And if you had missed it, you had to somehow find it. Right. And then you didn't want to miss the next one. So it changed everything. Yeah. And and what's interesting is having been a part of it in some small way, um, everyone was carrying on like it was another episode. It was hilarious. Right. And we were aware that this was almost SNL uh, material right. in terms of how – but it was um, – for me, it was pretty remarkable getting to be a part of a family mm-hmm. and having guested on many shows that was so welcome. Yeah, we were, we, were pretty, we were a pretty nice set. Yeah, I mean, we, it felt like valued. a theater group. It yeah. felt like there yeah. wasn't, and, and Jerry was as warm as everybody mm-hmm. else, yeah. and uh, um, and it moved really quickly. And you guys yeah. came up with, you know, it was all of you coming up with bits. Sure. Anyway, it was really fun for me uh, to be a part of it for a moment and to have met you. And were you, how do you prepare for superstardom? Uh, and how you do you don't. live? I mean, <laughs> can you talk? I mean, look, that was pre-Twitter, Snapchat. I mean, that was pre-people yeah. catching you yeah. when you didn't want to be caught. Yeah, it was it was all good. And the truth is, I got most of the good stuff and very little of the bad stuff. I was never of interest to the to, to the salacious part of the of right. celebrity. You know, I had my wife, I had my kids, I, I, I'm generally well-behaved. You kept your well wife, behaved. you kept your kids. Um, you know, uh, I was not a let's go to every premiere guy. I was not out showboating or showing off. As a result of that, I got to live my life. I could, I mean, you know, I, when I walk out the door, I a small part of my brain goes, they're watching. Mm-hmm. You know, people are watching, and I'm aware of that, but it doesn't change my behavior. No. I can kind of do the same thing. So I, I go to the supermarket, I go to the movies, and I, you know. And you get all the perks. If you go to a restaurant, you can't get a table, you get a table. If there's a Broadway show and there's no tickets, there's a ticket. You know, it was so that part is great. It it was really just the the notion of people why there's no pro, you're never anonymous. Mm-hmm. And it's not something you miss until you don't have it. There's a t- there are times when you go, boy, just a face in the crowd would be a lovely thing right now. Right. If I'm if I'm, you know, Elaine on the dance floor, <laughs> if I'm not moving well one day. If I'm nobody, I blend in. If I'm me, they go, you can't believe how badly Jasmine Alexander right. is. So, uh, but you took tap dance And for classes. a guy who's shy. Well, that's why, that's my point. And that's what I mean about there's there's the Jason Alexander and there's the Jay Greenspan. Jay Greenspan hates going on the dance floor with my wife at a wedding. Mm-hmm. I hate it. 
I hate it. Not because I don't like dancing with my wife, but I go, I, I don't want to be looked at. Let the bride be looked at. Why do I have to be looked at? And then there's the guy that goes, all right, let's do this. It's showtime. Let's go. You know, and and when people come up to me, the real me would go, oh, um, thank, thank you, you know, and, and just kind of shy away from it. When I was doing that, even in high school, when kids would come up to me after a show and go, hey, man, you were really good. And I didn't know what to do with that. And my mother saw me shying away from it. And she went, you cannot react like that. Mm. You look like you're being an ass. And you have to look people in the eye and hear what they're saying and say thank you if it's a compliment or take it in. And, and I had to learn how to do that. And I learned it so well that when I was in college, um, I remember... Your three-year program. In my three-year program. And I remember being with my girlfriend, my college girlfriend one night, and she said, you know, everybody here thinks you're the cockiest little bastard. And I went... I'm scared to death. And she goes, oh, I know, because I know you now. <laughs> that was your armor. That's right. That was your armor. Yeah. Do you feel like there was competition within the group in terms of who's getting more and who's getting more laughs and who's when in you were on the show? Yeah. Or, did you, or who's getting more famous or, I mean, this thing, it, it may or may not have been like that. Or were you all just so happy? So. I don't think so. You know, because we all thought, um, I think what made the Seinfeld Four such a, a fast ensemble is, like I say, we didn't think we were going to survive from week to week. Right. So it was no not like, was oh, yeah. uh, this is our bread and butter. Yeah, We kind of thought, well, this isn't going to last. And everybody here is really good. And nobody knows what's going on. So let's have fun. And very quickly, as you said, as you experienced, so... There was no real stage directions in our scripts. And, None. You know, and Jerry's, They're sitting in a diner yeah, is and, what it would say. Or Jerry's yeah. apartment where there's nothing to do. So the four of us would get up and we'd kind of find the business with each other. And very, Meaning the behavior. Yeah, what are we going to physically do right. here? We can't just stand How many bowls of cereal can we pretend right. to eat? Right. So we would find things and we would find things with and for each other. There were many times where I said, you know, if Julia does a thing here or if Michael does a thing here, it's it, we'll get a laugh and it'll create some business. So we looked out for each other a little bit. So I think as far as who's getting more laughs, no, that was never an issue. You know, I think some people may have assumed there could have been an issue because Michael and I were always in competition for the Emmy. And he got, th I was nominated six times, I think. I lost three times to David. Um, um, Hyde Pierce. Uh, thank you. I couldn't, I had the Pierce. I didn't have the Hyde. Uh, David Hyde Pierce. And to Michael. And uh, people said, you know, some, a couple of people said, you know, How'd you feel about Michael? And I went, and this is the truth. I said, when I was a kid in my living room accepting the award, it was a Tony. It was never an Emmy. Yeah. I, I didn't imagine television. It wasn't in my zeitgeist or, or an Oscar. M Michael, I think, used to imagine the Emmy. Mm -hmm. And I go, I got the one I want. He got the one he wants. He sure did. Uh, you know, um, I, you know, it would have been lovely to have it, and it's fine to not. I, I don't but also the show one. And there's that moment where you're all on stage, mm -hmm. and you know that was such a, a familial show. Yeah, and and you you all did win in that way. Oh come on! But yeah, also, absolutely. for it's... life, you are Tony Award winner Jason Alexander. <laughs> well, there you go. But but for a kid growing up in Livingston, yeah, practicing a Tony speech to get to do a, I mean, yes. And the only yeah. the only mind blow about it was that it, ha as you said, very young. Mm -hmm. It happened really young. Right. I, it's I hard thought, to picture you know, yourself. I'd be this age. Yeah, I... like Philip Bosco, and you're yeah. and you're grown up, and you're and yeah. you're winning your award. And it was it was also a good lesson because you know I always thought, well, what would it be like, or what must it be like to have a night like that, and you get that thing, and 
And I remember coming home that night, and that's when we had answering machines. And there were 20 messages on my machine, which was a lot, a lot but of it messages. wasn't 100. Right. And I got into bed with Dana that night, and she said, How do you feel? And remember that Pippin is my defining mm-hmm. show about everything I know in life I learned My from dog Pippin. was named Pippin. I, I think go. I understand what you're saying. So I turned to her, and if you know the show, you'll get this reference. And I said, I thought there'd be more plumes. That's intense. And it was, a, it was the beginning of a very great lesson that as, as, as a young person and as a young actor, I remember a part of me getting merrily we roll along at age 20 and going, I wonder what this will get me. As opposed to, no, what are you doing now? Yeah, I'm right here. It was always the next thing, the next thing. When I get this or when this happens or what, that will be when I can be happy or be relaxed or be secure, whatever I thought it was going to be. Were you able to do that during Seinfeld, to be in Seinfeld without thinking about what is Seinfeld going to lead me to? No. It's no, a but, human... but that, that Tony night was the beginning of at least the understanding that there is no there there. Mm-hmm. And that it is the journey. But what was so hard during Seinfeld is I was in a world, things were coming at me during Seinfeld that I hadn't imagined. And I thought, well, I'm an idiot if I don't go for this. So suddenly film and television was open to me in a way it hadn't been before. And I went, oh, I have to go get this. I got to do films and more television. And then all of a sudden one movie that I hadn't really thought I wanted to do said, well, we'll give you a production company. I went, well, I never... Thought about a movie and an being office. a producer. Right. So, you know, it was like, I should do that. Oh, I should do that. I, yeah. And so it, it started to feed that little beast about, mm-hmm. I, I, oh, yeah, I'll be that. I'll do that. I'll get there. And it wasn't really until I was in my mid-40s, which was after Seinfeld, where I went, you know what? There's no there. Do what makes you happy, if you can. And you don't have to. Do, thank you, Jerry Seinfeld. You don't have to do anything anymore. Right. Pursue what makes sense. Work with people that you want to work with or do something because it has value. Or I no longer, I'm 58 now, I no longer sit there and go, oh, my act three is going to be this and mm-hmm. this and this. I go, my act three could be teaching and making pots on a potter's wheel. So it, it, it was therapy and, and time before I could relax and go, now I'm is in the, the moment. best moment. Yeah. So I did your first film as second. a director? So so Just Looking was your second. Yep. Patty Laplone, who played my sister in Just yeah. Looking, was just here on the show. And we were talking about how much fun that was. And, and uh, it is no um, mystery why you were such a great director and are such oh, a great director. So Kindness, certainty, and talent. Oh, uh, nice. And it was really a joyous, joyous experience. And did you start directing on Seinfeld? Did you ever yes. direct Seinfeld? Yes, well, did. with cameras, yeah. So that was the beginning yeah, of Yeah, that the... got me in the... They did me a favor uh, and got me in the DJ. And, yeah, yeah, and then you could keep going. Well, it is truly remarkable to kind of watch your journey, which always brought you back to the theater. Damn it. Right? They keep, they <laughs> Damn keep it, getting you back. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's, you know, the reason I didn't, I when Seinfeld ended, I thought I'd come back here. And it was really my dang wife who said to me, because my, my boys, so we ended in 99, so Gabe would have been seven and Noah would have been four or five. Mm-hmm. And she said, if you want to go back to New York and do the theater, absolutely. We'll go anywhere you want to go. You you are the light that we follow in this right. family. 
She said, but I just want to ask you a question. You know what eight a week is. You know what that schedule is. And you know what parenting is. You have boys going to school now. So when they come in at the end of their school day, you'll be going out the door. On the weekends, you'll be going out the door. On the holidays and vacations, you'll be going out the door. Yeah. On your deathbed, do you think you will remember the great nights on stage or the nights you tucked your boys into sleep? And I went, you bitch. <laughs> um, is, there a, is there a C? Is there um, option C? Right. And, and so I kept eight a week at arm's length for mm -hmm. as long as I possibly could until the boys really were high school and college. Um, and that's when Larry said, hey, you want to come back and do this for me? And I went, yeah, now I can. So you replaced Larry in Fish in the Dark on Broadway, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. And how long did you do that for? 10 to 12 weeks, I right, can remember. Right, right. So how did you handle the times where things weren't going so great? And what kept you going? Uh, Nancy Wise, therapist of the... Yeah? <laughs> I did 10 years of therapy that were... During Seinfeld, after Seinfeld? Uh, it started during Seinfeld. Uh, I, I think... Um, so I spent my 30s doing Seinfeld. I think I started therapy at 36 and ended at 45. With the same therapist? Yeah, she was... I mean, she really was. Nancy was a, an amazing part of my life. What did you talk about all those years? Growing up. Uh-huh. So, so... And your relationship with your family? Absolutely. Uh, my relationship to me, my work, my career, uh, my fantasies, my, uh, I mean, you name it. Um, so the period after Seinfeld, there were a couple of fast opportunities that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my last 16 years have been self-generated things. I am not the guy they come to. I don't get invited to the party as often as people think I do. Everybody right. goes, how do you pick your film roles? I go, well, I will not do the ones I'm not offered. I draw the line right there. I'm very uh, clear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I used to do a lot of uh, an big animation voice projects, but they want A-listers, right? Um, now they do. That wasn't Yeah, that wasn't true. the case. I feel then. like Mike Myers ruined it for everyone. That could be. Yeah, like Shrek? Be. Really? Did it matter? Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I I mean, it's it's interesting. The, the it's not a Seinfeld curse because Julia has certainly proven that. It may be a little bit of a George curse mm. because I get offered a lot of comedy, and the kinds of comedy I get offered are the manic everyman more right. often than not. And I don't know if the audience is just going, eh, we're tired of that, you know, on you. Or if they won't let George go. It could be some of that. You right. Know? So the producers that have said, no, we we want to play. I've had great experiences. But I've done a lot of uh, symphony shows. I've done a lot of corporate shows, stand-up comedy, directing, teaching, guesting, until until Hit the Road came along. And, and I don't know, as we talk today, I don't know what the future of Hit the Road is. We haven't officially gotten our second season pickup yet. Um, Hit the Road is sort of a dark version of the Partridge family, yeah. right? It's yeah. kind it's of a, very a more twisted. We always said it's, edgy. It's, if you took the shameless family, put them on a tour bus and made them try to be Such the Partridge family, idea. that would be Such a great show. idea. Um, and we have a blast doing it. And it's uh, Amy Peets, who's a great TV I love Amy, yeah. And, um, and a bunch of really talented kids. But, but it's been that. It's been creating our stuff. I am not uh, everybody I have ever met, unless the whole industry has said, oh, we're lying, we're going to lie to Jason. Everybody goes, oh, we love him. Oh, what a great idea. And then somewhere somebody goes, 
yeah, but Paul Giamatti's not George. Mm. Or Nathan Lane's not George. Or whoever my equivalents are. So it may turn around. It may not. Uh, you know, that's why I, I love directing, would love to have that part of my life be the bigger calling card right now. I also love teaching, and I'm I'm not kidding. I if this if the rest of us goes away, I put up a shingle and open shop, uh, yeah. and happily so. Teaching acting mm-hmm. or uh huh or physics. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> the acting of physics. Oh yeah. <laughs> Do you have a way that you work that you can talk about? Oh sure, that's what I teach. Yeah, what I what I basically teach when I do master classes. Most people that do a master class come in and you show them work and they go, well, you could try this they or you could try it. that or you, they critique it. Yeah. Uh, my master class is bring me the thing you do best and then I'm going to show you how you don't know what you did. For example. All right. So I, I was invited to teach at a place called Ten Chimneys two years ago. It's a wonderful program at the Lundfontein Estate in Wisconsin. And they submit applications to rep companies all across the United States, and then they pick 10 actors who have had at least 15 years of professional experience to come, all expenses paid, and spend a week with a master teacher. And the only thing the teacher is told is, you must reinvigorate them about their craft. Okay. So I said, all right, well, I'm going to do the thing I do. And I, I said to them on day one, if I hand you a piece of material, I don't care what it is, song, classical, contemporary, whatever it is, how do you start to work on it? And none of them actually know. Mm-hmm. It's it's guesswork. It's instinct. It's experience. It's. But what I was trained when Larry Moss came into my life, oh, yeah. we started in the world of song, and there was it's a very unforgiving world because there's a lot of tricks to doing songs, and acting them, and Larry introduced me to this methodology of of answering four very specific questions. And it's the specificity of the answers that determine your choices. It's really how you start to make choices that let you explore material. What are the four questions? They are so basic. You'll go, really? That's it? I That's what know. you teach? I want to know. Okay. First question is, who am I talking to? But that's an unbelievably important question because when I teach, I go, okay, let's say you're playing Hamlet and you're doing the scene with Gertrude, his mother, and you say, who am I talking to? Well, the first thing an actor will say is, do you mean the character or me? I go, well, that's a very good question, and both have to be considered. But let's start with you, because you're making the illusion. So you get to create everything. So who are you talking to? And most actors will go, well, I'm, I'm gonna, he's talking to his mother. I'm gonna, use, I'm gonna talk to my mother. And they go, great, I've answered that question number one. And I go, have you? My mother has been the most nurturing, supportive, soft center of my life. My mother has been the bitch from hell who is the impediment to everything I want. My mother has been the doddering, frail child who I now have to care for. My mother has played a dozen roles in my life. Which mother are you talking to? Mm -hmm. Because they're not all... Right. Which one is right for Gertrude? And will your mother... Make when you picture your mother standing in front of you, what does she? How does she make you say these words? Is it your mother, or is it your wife, or is it the guy that tortured you in college, or is it, you know, the guy you envied in high school? Don't be literal, because the one that makes you say these words with intent is the one. Mm. 
So who am I talking to? Second question is, it's probably the most important one. What do I want them to do? Not think, not feel. Why not think? Why not feel? Because we don't know what people think or feel. We know what they say, but they could be lying. Mm. We really only know what they do. So you got to make them do stuff. And it can be banal. I want them to sit. I want them to stand. I want them to come closer. I want them to go away. I want them to hug me. I want them to kiss me. I want them to give me something. I want them to... What are you trying to make them do? Because that's your barometer about whether your performance is being effective. And if you're doing a monologue where there isn't somebody in front of you, and you don't have a very specific who am I talking to, and you aren't trying to make them do stuff, well, they might as well be a cardboard cutout. Yeah. So who am I, what do I want them to do? Number three is, what do I do to make them do that? And it's all verbs. And it's really where performances are made. Because you could have one action verb to cover two pages of dialogue. Or you can have three lines where you do 20 actions. Mm. It's, it's how do you... How do you weave your behaviors to make them do those things? And it's by doing something, checking in, doing something, checking in. Does it match the words? Does it elevate the words? The last one is, is that what's in the way? Why can't you just have it? What's the obstacle? And some in good writing, there's an obvious obstacle most of the time. But in some writing, there's no obstacle. And if you can find one, A, you can get great comedy. And B, you enhance... You just enhance the work. You give it a challenge that isn't there otherwise. Mm. I always say when I'm directing, there's no conversations in the theater. Sometimes you get two people talking on the stage and, and you go, it's real and it might even be funny and engaging, but it's just a conversation. Nobody's doing anything to the other person. And I go, uh-uh, nope. I didn't spend 150 bucks to come in and watch a conversation. That's a movie. Movies can get away with a conversation mm. en route to something, not theater. Something has to be at play here. So obstacle and intent are, are big on that. But when you, when you answer those four questions or you begin to answer those four questions in that order, you are making choices. And you're making choices that you can physicalize. And you're, once your body knows what this performance is, it can do remarkable things. Because I can tell you, and I'm sure you know, in a long run of a show, you don't feel it every night. Sure. So how do you do that performance? Well, you put it into your body. You put the, the, the choices in your body. Emotions don't always create action, but actions always create emotions. You can't really do actions and stay unengaged. And that's, that, that's the basis of what I teach. And then we build out from there. We take on different kinds of material. and we Every kind of material has technicalities. But when I say technique, this is all I'm talking about, mm. how you make choices. That's it. And you do that every time. You yeah. get a new script. Absolutely. People would go, Did you, do you do that on a Seinfeld script in the eighth season? I go, you bet. Look at my script. It has action beats. It has, you know, what am I doing? What am I trying to make people do? What was George's biggest obstacle? What I loved about George was he had two things at work, and, and his obstacle was an internal obstacle. George felt that he was never getting the respect and the rewards that he deserved. The obstacle was he felt worthless. And they play in absolute conjunction with each other. And no one should like me. I'm, I can't do anything right. The things I know I'm not sure about. And, and yet, is, that George's is that because of who George's parents were? Yes, although his parents didn't show up until season four. <laughs> I knew it because I was watching Larry. Uh huh. And Larry 
lives that, you know, not anymore. Not, Larry's self-doubt is largely gone. Is it? Well, the success erased it. Does it? Does success erase self-doubt? I think at a certain age it does. At some point, healthy self-doubt, I don't know if it erases. But the kind of self-doubt of, am I funny? I used to go around going, I'm not funny. Jason Alexander, not funny. 40 years in the business later, I go, I guess I'm funny. Mm -hmm. I guess if if I go into a comedy, I don't have to worry about being funny. I have to worry about how to do it well. But I don't have to worry about being funny. I know how to make laughs. That is a confidence I didn't have years ago. That's kind of incredible. That's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a story, an audition story that you remember? Oh, there are so many that went tragic. And... Let's, <laughs> what's the most? Um, you want one with a happy ending? I, I want all of them. The happy ending one was I was uh, asked to come in for a, uh, before there was Diet Coke, there was Tab. Delicious. No, but <laughs> but diet. Um, and I've always carried a minimum of 10 pounds too much to a maximum of 40 or 50. Good for you. Probably a, a good 15 over at this point. I was in my 20s. And they said, tab commercial. And so immediately I went, really? What am I, the before? You know. <laughs> um, and then they said, and they want you to come in a bathing suit. I went, oh, come on. But I was not one to turn down auditions. So we were living in New York, and my wife had family in Long Island, and every weekend we'd go out to Long Island. So I went, oh, fine. It's on a Friday. You know what? The hell with it. She'll go out Friday morning. I'll do the audition. I'll wear the bathing suit and a little cover-up to the audition, and then I'll go out to the island, and I'll be all ready to meet her at the beach or whatever. And I get to the audition. Always thinking. Always thinking ahead. (laughs) I get to the audition, and... There are these incredibly good-looking men uh, in suits, uh, three-piece suits, vested suits, uh, leisure suits, one-button, two-button suits, nobody in a bathing suit, all in suits. And then there are the creme de la creme of the Ford and Casablanca female models in bathing suits. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, my people got it wrong. <laughs> so first of all, I am not the right type for this commercial, and I'm wearing the girl's wardrobe. And every fiber of my is being is saying, get out, just leave. And then I went, no, God damn it. I'm here. I went in, and I go in with five of these, you know, Adonises and suits, and me, the, the bald Jew, the short bald Jew. And I believe Jay Greenspan <laughs> yes, was in the room. Right, then. yeah. And I go in and they go, what What are you doing? I said, and I decided I was going to stand up for myself. I said, what do you mean? Suit. Exactly what you said. Bathing suit. Suit. <laughs> and I, clearly, they knew what had happened. And I just wouldn't say die. And I'm doing this businessman stuff in my bathing suit <laughs> with these guys. And they're hysterical. So they wrote me a spot. They created a spot. That is the lesson we all need to hear. Yeah, don't leave. Don't leave. Thank you, Jason, for being here.
If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. ProMedia Sound Vision. Find out more at ProMedia.nyc. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.